I have the privilege this morning of opening up God's word. Our lead pastor, Paul, is away on vacation this week. So we trust that the Lord is supplying him with uh, needed rest from his ministry here. When I was in high school, uh, and if you've been in high school, you can probably remember your English class, which isn't my, was never my favorite class. I never excelled very, very much in English class. One of the practices you make, though, in your English class is you study literature. And you look at different history and different times over the course of history. And you look at literature that's been written ever since basically the beginning of time and since the beginning of language. And I can remember reading, uh, studying Shakespeare in one of my high school English, English classes. And I can totally remember the, that year we were reading the story of Macbeth. And we, well, we had read it. And the time came to write our final exam. And the exam was three questions. And your, your entire final exam, some 30% of your final grade depended on how you answered these three questions and they were in essay form. And I can remember totally having not paid attention to the story of Macbeth. And so I was able to kind of fake my way through two of them. And the third one, I had no choice but to just leave blank and hoping I had uh, done okay enough on the first two exams. And so I don't recommend that as a, uh, a strategy for, for high school English, but uh, I've learned from my mistakes one thing I did learn, though, in English is that you approach poetry different than other types of literature. See, I was more of a science facts kind of give me a textbook and I'll be able to understand what it is I need to know. But poetry for me was, was a different deal because you have to read it differently. And it's the same when we open up God's word. We read the Psalms differently than we would, for example, the Gospels or the Minor Prophets or the Major Prophets or the historical narratives of the Old Testament or the book of Genesis. We read the Psalms more like a song. In fact, that's what a psalm is, is was a song that was written and often accompanied by a stringed instrument of some kind. And so when we approach the psalms, it's more like interpreting poetry and understanding what's there. And what we see is that there's many complex layers. There's very deep theological ideas of who God is. And the writers use incredibly creative language, as we've seen. And they're able to give the readers, you and I, an incredibly deep perspective onto what it is that they were facing we can almost put ourselves in the cockpit of the original writers it evokes different emotions in the minds of the reader but here's why psalms are important because oftentimes we can skip through and when we have a an opportunity to lead a devotional or share a thought that seems spiritual we quickly go to the psalms because they're full of them and that isn't a bad thing but the psalms are no less inspired they're no less important or practical for us today than any other portion of scripture because we believe that all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for the Christian walk but what they do is they give us raw and uncut vignettes of how God has intervened divinely in the lives of his people through the span of time and quite simply psalms they do like no other no other type of literature as they reveal to us who God is he's a holy God he's a faithful God who intervenes experientially in the lives of those whom he loves. And so this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 28. And if a little bit of background into Psalm 28. It's a psalm of David, King David. Uh, we don't know a lot about what was happening around the time of the writing, but we know that David was the king, been appointed by God to replace King Saul. That would have, made if, that would have meant if you were the king of Israel, you were a political leader. You were the spiritual leader. You were a military leader. You fought in all the battles. You were the king. You were, you were kind of the, the icon of your country. And so King David was the leader of God's people, really in every sense of the word leader. One thing that the scriptures do tell us too about King David is that he was a man after God's own heart. Now don't be fooled into thinking that David was somehow 
extra spiritual or, or perfect by any stretch of the measure because as we read through his story in, in Samuel and in and Second Samuel, we see he had his fair share of, of shortcomings and we see that he indeed was nowhere near perfect. He experienced moral failures, military uh, failures. He won, he experienced victories, he experienced lost and everything in between. As a shepherd boy, he would have faced death multiple times. He fought Goliath. He experienced uh, uh, abandonment. He was forsaken by his own family members. But one thing that rings true, David comes full circle every time, and one thing that is true all the way through is that David feared the Lord. And so we have a lot to learn from his example as, as a king who led God's people in the fear of the Lord. And so keep that in mind with you, that David was far from perfect, but he was one who feared the Lord. Now in Psalm 28, there's some kind of crisis. As I said, we don't know what was going on. We don't know the context. We don't know where he was. We don't know where his oppressors are, but we know that he was in a moment of distress. There was a physical threat to himself and more than likely to, to a nation, to a group of people. And so this really is a cry for help. David cries to God. And then what we see here simply is that God answers. God delivers David from his oppressors and David blesses the Lord. So it's a very simple psalm, it's very straightforward. What I want to do is walk through it, make some observations, and then at the end we'll conclude with three theological applications, some theological hooks to hang our thoughts on from what we can glean here from Psalm 28. And so let's walk our way through the text, starting from the beginning. Verses 1 and, one and 2 is, a, is really a call where David says, answer me, God, answer me. He says, to you, O Lord, I call my rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. I've never feared my life. My, life is never, my, my physical life has never been jeopardized or, or threatened to be taken from me. But if it were, maybe for you it has. Maybe your prayer has been something along those lines where, God, if you don't answer me, I'll be as good as dead. I will be no better off than the wicked who go down to, the word he uses is, the pit. And an ancient Hebrew understanding is a, a, of, of the afterlife for those who are wicked is, is a place called Sheol. And it's a place of darkness, it's an abyss, and it really is a pit. And so David says, Lord, if you don't answer me, I am no better off than those who are in Sheol. I'm surrounded, there's nowhere to turn. His hands are raised to heaven. And he says to God, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands towards the most holy sanctuary you can imagine if you were out hiking and you uh you thought it wise to go out by yourself on a long hike and uh no one was with you and it wasn't a popular trail and so you were you were alone with no other hikers and you were near and imagine for a moment that you had a fall and you fell down a steep cliff and there you were at the bottom and you're injured and you're scraped and you're cut and you fell and you lost your pack on the way and you can't move your legs are injured you are incapacitated and then you finally come to, you can imagine the, the desperate cry for help. In a circumstance where, humanly speaking, there's no way out, there's no hope, there's no help available for you, imagine that kind of cry of anguish you would let out seeking to be delivered from sure death. So this is the circumstance that David finds himself in, where there's no way out, humanly speaking. He calls out to a God who he's seen and believes time and time again, not only to a God whose ears are not deaf, but to a hand, hands of a God whose hands is not, are not hindered. 
God's listening and God's able to help. This is who David cries out to. Let's move along. Verse 3 through 5 is is really a, a petition for deliverance for those evildoers, those oppressors who are in his midst. He's praying that God would would give them their due reward. He says, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands. Build them up. Pardon me. He will tear them down and build them up no more. In other words, not only deliver me, Lord, free me from them, but strike them down. Cease their wicked efforts, thwart their plans, bring them to destruction and raise them up no more. Again, we don't know who his oppressors are, but these aren't, these aren't uh, teenage delinquents who are riding circles around him on their bikes, teasing him. These aren't, uh, these aren't little high school uh, ba- backyard jokesters. This might be a, uh, equivalent to, to uh, in today's society, some kind of high-level criminal organization. Or further still, some high-level terrorist organization. These are bad fellas who David finds himself at the hands of. And they not only seek evil, have wicked intentions, but their hearts, in fact, are opposed to God. So not only are they doing things that they shouldn't be doing, but their hearts seep with evil. These are bad, bad people. Now David's prayer is, is right. If you were a Hebrew in this circumstance, your, your understanding is simply this, that God awards obedience and goodness and faithfulness with blessings. And anything less than that disobedience is awarded with a curse. That's a basic understanding of how the Old Testament mind would have been if you were a Jew. That's why the disciples come up to Jesus in John chapter 9 and they say, Jesus, here's a blind man. Who's to blame? Is it, is it, which of his parents is it? Who sinned so that he was born blind? That's how it worked. If there was sin, that was a consequence, a direct consequence some, uh, for, for some kind of sin. A consequence was a direct result of sin. And so David's prayer is really that God would pay them back what they're doing. This, this cry of David's uh, reminds me of me when I'm in traffic and I'm cut off maybe by somebody or there's a bad driver who passes me, he's maybe tailgating me and swerves around you. You pray that they would get their due reward. Maybe that they would get a, uh, a speeding ticket or worse yet, maybe that they, would, that they would get into some kind of accident. This is the condition of our heart that we, we believe that there's, there's, there's a penalty be, to be paid for, for wrongdoing. So David is justified in his prayer. But notice how he doesn't seek the justice himself. Maybe because he can't. He's unable to. But he prays that the Lord would indeed deliver the justice. I think this is part of why David was a man after God's own heart. Consider for a moment David fleeing death from King Saul. On many occasions, David was running for his life. Here's what he says. He has two opportunities to seek revenge on King, on King Saul, who's chasing after him. The first opportunity of revenge comes in a cave where King Saul is relieving himself and David is hiding with his men in the background and it's quiet and it's dark and King Saul has not a clue that David is there, that the one who he's seeking to kill is right behind him and his long robe is there and so David decides not to strike King Saul and to kill him, but he decides to cut off a corner of his robe 
And later he comes out to King Saul and he says, look, Saul, I had the chance to kill you, but I didn't. Here's what he says. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. The second opportunity that David has is, is a, in the quiet of night, middle of the night. King Saul is encamped with some 3,000 soldiers. David has the opportunity with one of his men. King Saul is right there asleep and there's a spear next to his head. And they have the opportunity to drive the spear right through King Saul. But King David says, lest my hand, lest I be guilty of murder against God's anointed king, let God bring justice on him and not me. God's the one who delivers justice. It isn't up to us. So David is right in his prayer that justice should be served for these oppressors. But he leaves it to God. Now let's move on to verse 6. It says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Something's changed. We don't know what. But the crisis is averted. His circumstances change such that a moment ago he feared his life. Verse 1 says, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent I become like those who go down to the pit. There's an imminent threat looming about. But by verse 6, the tune changes where he says, He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. And then he begins to give thanks and begins to explain more of how this, how this happened. There's some sort of divine intervention where a moment ago he was in the, David, King David was in the crosshairs of his oppressors whose intentions were evil. David chooses to place his heart, the trust of his heart, pardon me, in the Lord. While evil is surrounding him, his heart finds peace in the Lord. God shows up and he intervenes. And this is where he picks up in verse 8. The Lord is the strength of his people, the saving refuge for his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This really is a declaration. David's preaching to himself, reminding himself that it's God who has divinely intervened. He's giving thanksgiving and praise and he's preaching to himself the promises of God's faithfulness to deliver and to never abandon. So there we have Psalm number 28. I'd like to go a little bit deeper, take a level deeper and see three theological applications from this text, from Psalm 28. The first is that sin is severe. The second is that the shepherd is strong. And the third is that salvation is sweet. So the first of those in that order, sin is severe. Imagine for a moment that uh, you have the opportunity, you're short on some cash, you're a little bit desperate, but you're too proud to ask for help from your friends or your family members. And so you have an opportunity to, uh, to basically steal money from a friend without, without getting caught. And so you choose to do that. And sometime later, your friend or your relative realizes that they've been, they've been uh, wronged by you, that you've indeed taken money that wasn't yours, it was theirs. They might ask you to pay the money back. They would be just in doing so. They might lose some trust in you. That might ruin your friendship. It might change the course of the future for you and that person. And that would be an appropriate response. Now imagine for a moment that you're the, the, the treasurer of an organization, maybe a, um, a not-for-profit or a, a small little league baseball team. And you're the treasurer and you're overseeing the money that comes in and comes out and registration and paying for, for uniforms and equipment. And you're the treasurer 
And the same circumstances come by which you are short rent that month or times are tight and you're the only one in the office and slowly you begin to just siphon off some of the money from the top knowing that it'll go undetected. And you might get away with it for some time but a year, maybe two years, maybe a month goes by and suddenly there's a large discrepancy in the team's account or the organization's account and then they begin to uh, launch an investigation and you're found guilty for your offense there might be an article written about you in the newspaper. You'd certainly lose your position as treasurer of that team or that organization. You might be uh, permanently suspended from ever serving again, or that might give you a bad reputation from serving in other capacities. You might have to do community service, and in maybe the worst case, there might be a criminal record involved for embezzling money. But let's take that one step further, where you're, you're now a, a higher up, you're a, a, a a prominent leader in a, uh, in a large corporation and you find yourself in the same circumstance where you realize the rich keep getting richer from this corporation and you have the opportunity to, uh, to take a little bit for yourself. Maybe your salary is not what it should be and you feel that uh, you need to compensate yourself and you have the ability to do that. And so over time you begin to defraud this corporation of a thousand here, a thousand there. But again over time this discrepancy gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And what might happen in that case is that there may, be, there may be jail time. You may lose your job forever. There may be a criminal record. You may not be able to travel across the border. Listen, my point is this, is that the degree of an offense rises with the status of the one who's offended. So if that's a friend of yours, it's going to look different than if that's a multi-million or billion dollar corporation. The consequences will depend and so to sin, for you or I, you and I rather, to sin against a holy, eternal, almighty God, that would merit eternal and infinite punishment for that sin. Because the extent of an offense, the degree of the offense, rises with the status of the one who's offended. And so if the greatest being, God of the universe, is offended and wronged, there will be retribution. So you might say, well, God's a nice God. He sent Jesus after all. God, God's kind. Wouldn't he just let it slide? Couldn't God just let sin go? No, the answer is no, he can't. Because he's a just God. And sin must be atoned for. There's a price to pay. It can't go unexcused. It can't go unpaid. There is a price to pay. And as David reminds us, it's God who judges sin. It's God alone who has the final word. God who will render the due reward for those who are wicked. He says this in Romans 12. The Apostle Paul says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, sin has a way, has a funny way of causing us to look left and look right and look up and look down and compare ourselves and rate our sins up against how we think other people are doing and how God should, as a result, reward us or maybe punish us. And so we tend to look at our neighbors, maybe our friends people who are in a similar stage of life and we compare ourselves up against them but you and I the truth of, of the scriptures is that you and I our hearts have a natural predisposition or a natural bend away from God our own our own sinful desires cause us to rebel that's the condition of our heart is of rebellion towards God and God takes sin very seriously he's not a God to be trifled with let me show you what I mean the prophet Nahum, one of the short books in the Minor Prophets. The prophet Nahum 
casts a warning. He sounds the alarm to the city of Nineveh, a wicked, wicked city. The same city that God calls Jonah to go and preach the good news to. These are these people who are are heinous sinners. Here's what God says to them in the the first chapter of the book of Nahum. The Lord is a jealous God and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. Those are, those are mountains. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. You see, God's anger is a righteous anger. And he's right in judging sinners, giving recompense for sin. So sin is severe. The second is we see that the shepherd is strong. We live in a self-made culture and it doesn't take much time to look around our world and see that to be the case. You probably have your own lawnmower and your own tools and if there's a problem you have your own plumber or your own mechanic and we like to accomplish things ourselves there's some there's a little bit of uh of 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 shame or a little bit of of embarrassment when we have to go to other people and ask for something we live in a self-made culture where we like things like control and we like predictability and comfort but on march 11th of this year the world health organization as you know declared a global state of emergency a global pandemic which on March 11th, no one really knew what that meant. But by the end of that week, even here in our own hometown, we saw that suddenly schools were closed. We saw that businesses were closed. We saw that once necessary and crucial uh, comforts that we had were taken away. Jobs were lost. There became economic turbulence. Stock markets became unpredictable. And the comforts that we so often got used to, the luxuries of life, were put on hold. The world as we knew it came to a halt. So let me ask you this, what what is your heart trusted in? When the things you turn to, maybe that's sports, or maybe that's a paycheck, or maybe that's a pension check, or maybe that's your rations, your your weekly daily rations at the grocery store. When those things are taken away, when your idols are stripped from you, what is it that your heart trusts in? Or to put it another way, what confidence do you have What confidence has carried you through each day since March 11th, where the future of our world is uncertain, which is always true, but particularly now we're reminded in very vivid ways that we don't have control over a whole lot. You see, David's confidence and his confident plea and his cry out is rooted in the fact that he trusts in what David refers to as his rock. Remember, this is poetry. This is poetic language where imagery is so profound. And in verse 1, David cries out to his rock and he says that in him his heart trusts and he is helped. Now, I don't know about you, but the only people that I'm willing to trust, the only things I'm willing to trust, 
are things or people that I know are stronger than me. They have more information than me. Or someone who's proven themselves to be worthy of trusting. Someone who's a trustworthy person or something that's trustworthy. Maybe it's a harness and a rope while you're climbing or cleaning your gutters. You're going to place your trust in those things or the chair or the couch that you're sitting on. Those things have proven themselves to be trustworthy. So let me ask you this. What is your rock? I'd like to suggest to you that the shepherd in Psalm 28 is stronger. Let me show you what I mean. Earlier this week, uh, it was exactly 3.02 a.m. I woke up, my wife woke me up and she said, Andrew, there's someone outside. I heard a noise. So I had my opportunity to uh, go check it out, right, and go, go defend my property. I heard the noise too and I thought, oh man, here we go. So I get ready to go outside and check it out. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> but fortunately for me, no sooner did I open up the door and I saw lightning. And I realized that the noise that woke my wife up and the flash that we saw through the window wasn't, wasn't a burglar. But it was a lightning storm that you probably were woken up to around the same time on Thursday night. Spectacular storm. So my wife and I couldn't fall back asleep. It was too noisy and it was too exciting. And so we spent over, over half an hour just looking out the window, whispering at how incredible and how amazing the flashes of lightning were. Eugene Peterson paraphrases beautifully part of Job chapter 38 where Job is angry towards God for all of the things that have happened to him. His family's been taken away. All of his possessions are taken away. And so Job gives God a piece of his mind. And here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases Job 38. This is God now addressing Job in a response to Job's anger. Can you get the attention of the clouds and commission a shower of rain? Can you take charge of the lightning bolts and have them report to you for orders? You see, while there's a scientific explanation for things like lightning and thunder, the Bible's very plain. It's God who holds the lightning bolts. It's God who whispers the thunder. We serve a strong God. The God who sends lightning and who sends thunder is the God who will carry you through whatever you're facing. He's trustworthy. He will carry you like a shepherd carries a sheep. So, you've probably found yourself, though, in circumstances in life where, yeah, you believe God's strong because other people are experiencing it and you see it in the scriptures and you see that Almighty God interacts with humanity, with his children, but why not me? We all come to points in life where we begin to doubt God's faithfulness and God's promises and that God really holds the lightning in his hands and whispers the thunder. You've been in one of these circumstances. So what if it seems like God's ignoring you? What do you do in those moments where you're praying just like David, God, if you don't help me, I'll be no better off than those who are dead and buried in a pit. What do you do then? God's promises are not proving to be true in your circumstance. Jesus tells a story to his disciples in Luke chapter 18 of a widow who comes to a judge. And here's how Jesus starts. He says, or or here's how Luke starts in Luke chapter 18. Jesus told them, his disciples, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray 
and not lose heart. And he begins to tell them a story, a parable, so not a true story, but it's a bit of an allegory. He tells this parable of a woman, of a, wood, of a widow, who seeks justice from a judge who neither fears man nor honors God. So he's not righteous, he's not afraid of anything, he does what seems right to himself. And this woman goes to the judge seeking justice and day after day the judge sends this woman out not delivering justice like he's supposed to do. But this woman takes it upon herself to go persistently day after day after day and finally this unrighteous judge has had enough and he says, okay, fine, enough. (laughs) Not because I care about you or your circumstance, But because I want you to stop bothering me, I'll bring justice. So the unrighteous judge delivers justice to this poor woman. And here's what what Jesus says in chapter uh, Luke 18, verse 6. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? You see, even if an unjust judge or an unrighteous judge is willing to answer the desperate cry of someone who's persistently begging and imploring, how much more will will your Father in heaven, how much more will the shepherd of his flock grant your persistent pleas, grant your requests? Will God delay in answering the cries of his children? You see, God's infinite. His perspective is infinite. He was there in the beginning and he'll be there till the end. His perspective is infinite And our perspective on life is is a blip. We can trust in his sovereignty to answer our prayers accordingly. He will carry us, but he wants us to come to him persistently in prayer. The shepherd is strong. Finally, salvation is sweet. David really was no better off than his wicked oppressors because as we saw, all are wicked. God judges sin accordingly and all of us are wicked so the right thing for God to do to David as anyone in history would be to drag them off into the pit that would be the just thing for God to do for God to deliver judgment and recompense for sin you see unless your your birth certificate or your driver's license says that your date of birth is Genesis 1 you're subject to the full weight of sin none of us are any better even though we compare and we like to rate ourselves none of us get a pass none of us are righteous not one and the consequence for sin Romans 6 23 the wages of sin is death but the severity of our sin is most clear when it's illuminated at the backdrop of the salvation that's freely offered to us in Christ you see in Psalm 28 there's a circumstantial deliverance a circumstantial type of salvation where David is freed from his oppressors What greater oppressor is there to fear than the enemy? Separation from God. The severity of our sin is most clear when it's illuminated by the backdrop of the sweetness of salvation that's offered to us in Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Again, the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus gives them, gives his friends a picture of what I refer to as the the great exchange He says this in chapter 2, And you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions 
of our flesh and were once by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, no one's any better off than anyone else. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. You see, God deals with his children differently. So while he's a just judge who will deliver righteous judgment on sin, he deals with his children differently. And as we see from King David in in, uh, verse 6 of this psalm, God hears the voice of his children not only does he hear the voice of his children, though, but we see that God, God acts in a mighty way where no one else can, where no other rock, no other foundation could possibly bring deliverance or salvation. It's God who acts. In fact, David says, refers to his rock as his saving refuge. The offer of mercy is freely given to those who would seek it. The next part of Romans 6.23 is that the free gift of God is eternal life. So while the wages of sin is death, the free gift is eternal life. This is the good news, very simply. It's the great exchange that God took the wrath that was due us and sent his son in our place to take the full weight of sin. The penalty of sin had to be paid and God dealt with it. He did. He didn't ignore it. Make no mistake. His righteous judgment was sent on himself through Jesus Christ on your behalf and on my behalf. So Christ stood in our place, opened up the keys to the prison, and in exchange for our prison garb, gave us clean, fresh, white clothes. God showed his love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as a shepherd will rejoice, When a lost sheep is found, so too will heaven rejoice over a single sinner who repents and embraces the sweetness of salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for the beautiful imagery that is in Psalms, and particularly this Psalm where we see that you are a good shepherd, that you offer a salvation that can't be found anywhere else. And you took on the severity of our sin, the punishment that was due in my place. Father, you took it on. And so I pray that this reality, this truth in the gospel would change the way we live. It would change the way that we interact with our neighbors, with our spouse, with our friends. And that this great exchange, Father, would would open our eyes to your love and your greatness towards us. Father, thank you that you rejoice over sinners when they repent and you welcome them home. We love you, Lord. Amen.